Let's open our Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapters. Going to read a little bit there and then I want to pray over the word as we get into it this morning. 2 Corinthians located right to the side of 1 Corinthians um, chapter 7 and verse starting in verse 2. It says, make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. And I don't say this to condemn you since I've already said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you, because he told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it is not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wronged, but in order that your devotion to us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comforts us in our, in our afflictions, that it treats us and, and is healing to all of our flesh, uh, to our body, but to our soul and to our mind. I thank you that you grow our faith today, that our faith would increase as we hear your word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word and that we'll be able to see you more clearly so we can walk with you more closely and work for your kingdom more effectively in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we're continuing on this little stretch on the church, the body, it's going to be this week and next week, and then we're going to start into our next book of the Bible. I'll tell you next week which one that is. But the church, the body of Christ, and we've had the question, and I won't linger on it a long time, because if you've been here, you've already heard me say it. What comes to your mind when you think about the church? Because uh, that matters. That's how you're going to interact with her. That's how that's going to dictate how you receive from uh, the church or through the church from God. What comes to your mind when you think about the church? And is that thought a right thought? Is it coming from faith or is it coming from something else? So just making sure we're looking into our view of the church doesn't match his view of the church. And one thing I've commended to you as we've talked about this is to picture it as a table, as a table of fellowship, a family table, because it says in the word that 
uh, now you are the body of Christ and individual members in it. It, it, We're joined together as a body. A body isn't separated. A body is together, present together. And how can individuals be together lest they come together? Uh, and, And so that table view that we're connected and we need to remain connected. We talk about some of the things that Uh, happen at the table. We're welcomed at the table. You're welcomed at the family table. You have a place at the home table, even if you don't deserve it that day. You still have a place at the table. Even if you got crossways with mom or dad, you still have a place at the table, at a good and right table. Amen. And at the table, we receive identity. Identity isn't something that we find in ourselves. Identity is conveyed from someone higher than us and we receive it. And we obviously want to make sure we're receiving our identity from God the Father. And then last week, we began to talk about teaching. That we learn at the table. We learn from those who are ahead of us, who are the generations above us at the table. We were in Acts 11 and the church there at Antioch uh, where Barnabas arrived and he saw the grace of God because many were hearing uh, the message of Jesus Christ. They were turning to the Lord and following him. And then Barnabas saw the grace of God there, encouraged them to continue to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And then he said, I also feel like Saul needs to be here. So he went to Tarsus and found Saul and brought him back to Antioch so they could teach there for over a year. Uh, the, the church teaching them, training them up in the way that they should go. And we talked about how information is only one part of teaching. It's only one part of learning. And, and, and the bigger part and the part that makes it more effective and most effective is the relationship that is that is coming with it. Because we have so much information now and we're no better off than we ever were. We've got less relationship now than we ever have. And we need to have both. And I don't have time to get back off into that. Uh, But we need to be seen. We need to be known. uh, And we need to know even in being seen and known that we are loved. We looked into how we're supposed to keep the gospel in front of us, that that's always supposed to be in front of our eyes and we're supposed to take it and then apply it to the different areas of our life so that our lives are different when they're looked at from the outside. It said that there in Antioch, they were first called Christians. The followers of Jesus were first called Christians. They had to come up with a name for them because they were so different in the way that they lived. They had a term for them. Y'all just the little little Jesus is out here running around. There's something different about you. People need to be able to see and, and, and feel that difference, even if they can't describe it. Right. And, and that comes from learning how to follow him. I remember when we were in St. Louis, we go to one of the places, the, the city museum there. And we're at the, you know, I'm paying to get in. And uh, I asked the question, I said, you know, I've not been here before. Tell me, you know, what, what's this? What's this? And she's OK. And she tells me and then she kind of looks at me. She says, you're not from here, are you? And I said, no, we're not. We're from, you know, South Arkansas. She said, I can tell. (laughs) I said, you can tell. She said, yeah, I can tell by the way you talk. You don't talk like you're from here. You talk like you're from there. And so there was a noticeable difference. And that's what the the gospel applied to our life creates a noticeable difference uh, when we interact with people. Jesus said in Matthew 28, and this is all introduction. We're going somewhere. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go therefore into all the world and make 
disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. He said, go and make disciples. And we say uh, disciples over converts, right? We're converted, but we want to, we want people to be converted from sinners into disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciple meaning to taught and instructed to follow his precepts, his teachings, and his instruction. And this is what Paul is speaking about. Paul wrote this in Corinthians to the church at Corinth. This is what he's talking about. This was a church that he planted similar to how he he worked with the church in Antioch. He didn't plant it, but he worked with them to grow it up. Uh, And then same thing here in Corinth. If you read Acts 18, it would tell you that he was there for a year and a half with the people in Corinth teaching them, working among them and discipling uh, them as followers of Jesus Christ, teaching them how to live this life out. You have a new life in Christ Jesus. Here's how we walk that out. Here's how we live that out in day to day life. And this is second Corinthians, which means there was a first Corinthians, right? That was the first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. This is the second letter that he's written to this same church. And there in verse two, he tells them, make room for us in your hearts. Make room for us. Who, who Paul and the others who were there with them, teaching and discipling and working with them for over a year, he said, make room for us in your hearts. Meaning that, that we're to, to, to create a space there where we've got room to hold something. Remember, if, you, if you've got your hands full of something and somebody tries to hang something, I can't take that. What my hands are full right now. He's saying create some room, create some space in your hearts for us. We only have so much real estate in that heart, in that soul space. And what we dedicate that to is important. Those are the things that have access to the deepest parts of us that that have our affection and what has our affection has our attention. We were talking about that this morning in in some of our early conversations. He says, make room for us. Why? Because there's more still for you to receive. Uh, You make room so that you are able to receive. And Paul goes on to tell him, he's like, we've proven ourselves trustworthy, right? Uh, We've wronged no one, corrupted no one. We're not out here taking advantage of people. We've proven ourselves trustworthy of this room in your heart. He says, I'm not condemning you. That's not why I'm writing this. That's not why I'm asking you this. Since I've already said that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. He said, I've already made room for you in my heart. I just want you to make room for us in your heart. And again, they haven't just met. This is, this is built on, these comments are built on uh, over a year of day-to-day in and out living amongst the people of Corinth. And he's repeated this already from chapter 6. Uh, if you look back in chapter 6 and verse uh, 11, he said, We've spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been open wide. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. He's saying that there's a, there, there's a gap here and I want you to open your heart so that you're able to what? Receive. 
And he said, we, we, you're in our hearts both to die together and to live together. Meaning I would die with you. And if death's not on the table, I'm living with you. That, that you are as the, you know, you're my ride or die. I had to make sure that didn't mean anything bad. If it means anything bad, I don't mean it bad. I asked some of the kids, what does that mean? It just means you're, you're, you're true to somebody, that you're there no matter what, that you're always for them, that you're always with them. Whether we're riding or we're dying, I'm with you. And that's what he's telling them. I am with you in all those things, whatever may come up. I'm with you. You're in my heart. There's this deep and abiding connection uh, that there's a family relationship. And so he starts there. And then in verse four, he starts to tell him, I'm going to I'm going to be frank with you or I'm going to shoot you straight. I'm going to tell you the truth. Why? Because I have great pride in you and I'm filled with encouragement and overflowing with joy, even in our afflictions. And he talks to him in verse five through seven. He's like, we were struggling in Macedonia. We were having a lot of issues in Macedonia. But then Titus showed up and Titus had been there with y'all. And he came and told us about how things were going with you and how much you loved us and how much you appreciated us, how much you wanted to see us. And it encouraged us even in what we were dealing with just to hear about you and to hear what the Lord was doing in your life. And that's through verse seven. I want you to watch this because what he's about to say has to be read in context, which means it has to be set on top of what he just said. What he's about to say is set on top of what he already said said. Context is important. It's vital. Amen. So verse eight, let's start with the beginning of it. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. What letter is he talking about? He's talking about the letter of first Corinthians In first Corinthians. You can go and read it. He had to chew on them a little bit. Because there were things that they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing. He was, he was coming to them and speaking to them as a father would a son or a daughter to go, what you're doing isn't right. You need to stop doing what's not right and start doing what is right. And he, had, he spoke kind of forcefully. There was, some, there was some heat on what he said. And he's saying here, if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. When he was telling them, hey, stop this, stop that, do this instead, do that instead, what y'all know better. He said, I know that grieved you when I sent it, but I don't regret grieving you. And that's why I said, you got to read that in context. If you just read that by itself, like I sent you a letter and it was kind of rough and it made you mad. I really don't care. (laughs) Right. If you just hear that by itself, you're like, that's a little rough. But he just finished saying Our hearts are open to you. We are your ride or die. We have this relationship. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm encouraged by you. I want to encourage you. But he said, even if I grieved you, I don't regret it. Grief meaning sorrow or distress. Even if I distressed you or made you sorrowful with this letter, I don't regret it or I don't regret that consequence that came about. I still would have sent the letter. He's saying, you read that, you heard it, it laid down some law. It, I mean, it, it, it chewed on you a little bit, but I don't regret sending it. And again, he's setting that on top of what he's already said. We love you. There's room in our hearts for you where you ride or die. But listen, from that, from that position, there were some things I needed to straighten out. 
there were some things that I needed to speak on that you needed to stop doing. And there were some things that you weren't doing that you needed to start doing. The correction is on the back of an established relationship. He's not a stranger to them. This was an established relationship between the two. There was context to that, which is good, right? If you're going to lash me, I need to know that you love me. If you're going to discipline me or, 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 or speak correction to me, I need to know that you love me because that's the first thing I'm going to doubt, isn't it? That's the first thing you're going to doubt when somebody goes, well, Stephen, you really shouldn't be doing this or this. This is causing you issues. You need to do this or this. I'm like, he said he don't like me. He thinks I'm awful. He thinks I'm an awful person. I can't believe he thinks that about me. What? That correction has to be on the back of the relationship. Because when it's coming from your ride or die, the relationship holds up the correction. And you know it's coming truth, but in love. Now watch this. He says, even if you were grieved by the letter that I sent, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw it grieved you only for a little while, I would now rejoice. He said, even if I did regret it, I wouldn't regret it anymore. I'd be happy. I would be happy about it. Why? I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. He said, when I sent you that letter, I knew it might grieve you a little bit, but I don't regret it because you needed to hear it. And I rejoice now because it worked, because you did repent. You did change the way that you thought and that grief for you was gained and not lost because it was godly grief leading to repentance and salvation. And that's I I let in on that. That's verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Now watch that. Godly grief versus worldly grief. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And worldly grief leads to death. Now you might be thinking, is there a no grief option? Because I would kind of like that. That would be a lot easier to sell, wouldn't it? A no grief option. I feel like that's what we get. Sometimes we get sold a no grief option. Then the grief hits us and we're like, I don't feel like you, you, you shot me straight with this. Is there a no grief option? But he's talking about godly grief. And I'm a, when I was reading this and studying this and I was like, Lord, can I really go that direction? Or am I just thinking about that and being silly? I kept thinking about Charlie Brown. You may or may not know Charlie Brown, but almost everybody knows Charlie Brown, right? The little Peanuts cartoon, all their little friends. They've got the Christmas special. They've got the Great Pumpkin special, the little cartoons that would come on. And Charlie Brown had the line, and one of the lines he's most famous for is saying what? Good grief. Good grief. And I thought about that, and I'm really big on, I think the word is etymology, which just means the history of words. Like, where do they come from? How did we get them? What do they mean? You know, have they, has it changed over time? You know, just some of the words we use in 
language. Because I'm listening, I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about this godly grief. And he says good grief. And I'm like, why does he say good grief? Anyway, she just took the football away. You think he was like, say something else to her. Maybe instead of just saying good grief, like why is he saying good grief? What does that mean? What do we use it to mean? And we know what it means when we say it, right? We mean like, this is frustrating me. I can't believe this is happening. You know, good, you know, your favorite football player who you thought was going to be in the game. Now he's out with an injury. Good grief. Just when things were going good. Just when they, right? It's like, a, this is a hardship. Good grief. And, and I started, you know, looking more into that. And they said, well, it's a euphemism uh, for when people used to say good God. Good grief started up in about the 16 or 1700s. Charlie Brown been around a while, I guess. Uh, but they would say good grief or uh, good God. And I got to thinking about that. I was like, well, I wonder if it started with dealing with a hardship, dealing with a situation and, and almost turning it into like a prayer and going, Lord, let this be. This is grieving me. Let this be a good grief. Let this be a helpful grief or a a tough situation laid right in front of you that your response is, God, be good in this. I know that you're good in this. And they see, but it slowly but surely turns into something else. Just like I'm sure it started when people would say, for goodness sake, oh, for goodness sake, right? But for, let this be for goodness sake in my life. What, what, what is some, some people say, and it's a you know, it, it, it's using the Lord's name in vain. And when I say it, I'm not going to be using his name in vain. But they will say, for Christ's sake. Right? They'll use that as a curse or an exclamation, for Christ's sake. But see, Philippians tells me in chapter 1 that we believe and suffer for Christ's sake. And so, see, I wonder just about the root of this. And I thought, well, it, it's going to stick with me because of that. So I wonder if it'll stick with you. And I think some of them changed it after that. Like we shouldn't, since we started saying it like that, we got to take his name out. We're going to put Peter's name in there for Pete's sake. <laughs> right? Because where else would that have come from? Right? For Pete's sake. It's like you realize you shouldn't be putting his name in there. Well, we're going, we want somebody close to him. We can say it about Peter for Peter's sake. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm dealing with the same tribulations that he dealt with. But again, instead of it being an exclamation more of a of a curse, I'm saying something bad about the thing that's happening. I, can I can I say something good about him and go good grief? Or as Paul said at the beginning of one of his lessons, this one, I think um, he said, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. He said, we, we rejoice in our afflictions because our afflictions are resulting in your comfort. There is such a thing as godly grief. Godly grief comes from having the truth laid before you in love and it leads to repentance. Repentance, it's another Christian word. Repentance, uh, I think it's metanoia in the Greek. Repentance means to change the way that you think. Or you'll hear people say it's it's a turn, like it's a 180 degree turn from thinking that way to thinking this way. I've changed my mind. To repent, it would be a a simpler way to say it, was mean you change your mind about something. 
well, I thought it was going to be this, but it's not. It's this. I've repented. I've changed the way that I thought. And what he's saying is that godly grief will lead to repentance, changing the way that you think and salvation. Why is it leading to salvation and not salvation? We're saved from hell, but salvation. I'm saved out of that situation from it being over me and me being under it to now I'm over it and it's under me. Because repentance brings a change of mind, which also brings a change of attitude. And I'm able to avoid the, the, the peril of the negative consequences that I was going to be involved in. Why? Because I've changed my mind. It changed my direction. It changed the way that I thought uh, and, and related to whatever it was that I was dealing with. Good grief, Charlie Brown. So this is one of the questions and it's rhetorical. You don't have to shout it out. But who in your life have you given room in your heart to speak truth to you? Who has that door open to them to speak truth to you? In love, but who has that door? Who has that door open, that room in your heart that you've made room for them? And and only you can answer that. Only you can make Room, But just think on that. Who who in my life have I given access to speak into my life and to even correct me when I need correcting? And you can do that and it be somebody speaking out of complete nonsense. So that's the other thing you got to keep your eyes open for, right? There's an example in the Old Testament. King Rehoboam, he took over. I think he's one of the sons of Solomon. Anyway, he, he takes over as king and he's looking for advice and he's looking for counsel. And he goes to the wise, it was Solomon's son. He goes to the wise advisors who counseled his dad, who've been around for a long time and have seen everything. And they say, King, we would advise you to do this. And then he goes and talks to his buddies. Those were the ones that he had opened his heart to, that he had made room for in his heart. And they were a bunch of morons. And they said, we think you should do this. Don't do what they said. Do the opposite of it and do this. And guess who he listened to? Them. And guess how it went? It went bad. So you can have your heart open for somebody to feed into that and it not be what you need to hear. So you need to have some discernment there. Also, is your heart open? Who is it open to? And what are they doing with that access? What are they doing with that access? Access. Do you look at the fruit of their life? Do you want them speaking into your life? Look at the fruit of their life. Do you want them speaking? Not that I can't be around them, not that they can't be my friend, but do you have that access in my heart to direct, help direct my paths and where I go? Because that's what we're talking about, to be able to bring about that godly type of grief to go, man, I thought that was right. And now I've been confronted with that's probably wrong. And now I've got to process this. And I've either got to double down or I've got to repent. Who has that place in our life? There is not a no grief option. We think that there is and that that must be, I'm just going to shut everybody off and I know enough to do it myself. I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to avoid all that grief. I'm going to avoid any correction because I know what I'm doing. I've got it figured out. I always say I was never as smart as when I was 18 years old. I had about 98% of the world's knowledge at that point in time in my life. And I would have thought that I, I could shut off everything. I don't need to listen to anybody. I know every, I know all of it. 
No, all of it. But guess what? Not allowing that godly grief, not allowing space in my heart for that godly grief, guess what I subject myself to? The worldly grief. I subject myself to the worldly grief because an absence of godly grief will bring worldly grief. Why? Because the godly grief is the only thing that will bring repentance. Worldly grief does not. It just brings pain. There's no repentance. There's no change. I'm my own person. I am am the singular authority. I do what's right in my own eyes. That's what I do. And it brings about that worldly grief, which leads to what? Death. Because the wages of sin is death. That's what we're talking about. When we get off into sin or areas that aren't of faith, we need to be brought back. You're like, well, I have the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. He'll lead me and guide me. And yes, He will when you're in faith. And when you're not, you may be listening to other voices. Because nowhere in there does it say, just walk and listen to the Holy Spirit only and don't let anybody else speak into your life. What it says in there a lot is, hey, y'all who are of the faith, if one of y'all, one of, one of them from your circle gets, get, gets caught up in sin... Go and rescue such a one. Be careful that you don't fall into it as well, but rescue them, bring them back. And, and, and for you to have turned one back is to have saved a soul. Yes, Holy Spirit. Yes, Holy Spirit. Lead us and guess what he does? He also confirms through people. He confirms it through people, through his church. Paul commends an open heart. He tells them to be open to the Spirit. Guess what? He also says, open your hearts to us. Open your hearts to us, your rider dies, the ones who are going to bring the truth. Open your hearts to the church. Why? So that you can continue to receive. He says in verse 11, consider how much diligence this very thing, what very thing? This grieving as God wills has produced in you. A desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, and what justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. He's saying consider how much more diligent you are now that this godly grief, this good grief has produced repentance. Verse 12 in the beginning of verse 13. He says, so even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wrong. He's like, it wasn't about that. But it was in order that your devotion to us and what's he talking about, to what we've delivered to you might be plain, made plain to who? To you in the sight of God so that you could see clearly. See, we can focus on when something's brought up, we can focus on the wrong. Well, you're calling me wrong. You're calling me bad. You're saying I'm a problem. No, no, no. There is a wrong, but what I'm focusing on is the right that I want to see you turn to. It's not about you being wrong. He said it wasn't about the one who did wrong or the one who was done wrong, but so your devotion might be made plain. To who? To you. Godly grief and repentance by definition turns from one thing to another. And it'll turn us back from error and it saves a soul from death. Again, that's in the book of, that was in the book of James. It also talks about it in Galatians. See, sometimes we need help to see the good, don't we? We think we can see real good. I can see good. I'm going to go to my eye doctor appointment next time and they're going to say, hey, with your corrective lenses, you can see good. But guess what? Sometimes 
I open that refrigerator and I'm looking in there and I cannot find it. Whatever it is, where's the salsa? Where's the mayonnaise? Where's the cheese at? And Kelly's right, she's standing there. And this last time she said, oh my gosh, it's literally right there. It was literally in the center of the top shelf in the front. And I can see. I drove here. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see. I'm looking. And now I think, this side note, I think for us guys, and ours is lower, so I think it's like when I get down, it has to do with the circulation to my head maybe, and I can't process it. I'm like looking. And maybe I'm too close to it. Maybe it would be better if I opened it and like stood back, but we never do that. Which is probably another lesson, right? That if you put a little distance between you and it, you can see it a little bit more clearly. But I can see, but I needed her to help me. I can't see see the good right now. I can't see what it is that I'm looking for. Maybe it's because I'm hungry. Maybe it's because I'm in a hurry. Maybe it's because I'm used to her hiding it. I don't know. How does my stuff always end up at the back? I never put it at the back. Anyway. But we need help to see the good. Sometimes we'll miss it when it's standing right in front of us. And the Lord has given us one to another to help in our sanctification. The relationships that he's given us in this life are to help our sanctification. What's sanctification? It's another church word. I'm saved positionally in Christ. I am not guilty before the throne of God. My sins have been atoned for. I stand in the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, just like we sang today. And yet, it's that already, but not yet. I'm already that, and my condition is still catching up. He's still straightening me out. Those bends in my life, those iniquities in my life, those tendencies toward temptation. He's still straightening me out. And that's my sanctification. He's given us one another as an aid in our sanctification. And there will be times that that produces a grief when we're being discipled, right? From Again, just like at the table, from one generation to the next, we're, we're discipled and we're taught. I saw one mama bring a wooden spoon in here this morning. Do you know why? That was to bring about some godly grief. So that from that, repentance lead to life and godliness. Why? Because there's some things you need to learn. There's some things you need to know. I know it seems right to you right now to do this. Nobody else in here thinks that. And we want to get you up to that point. We, we, want, we want to learn how to walk in the godliness that we've been granted in Christ Jesus. That's why we need that table of fellowship. We need ride or die people in our life who walk with the Lord, who know the truth, who know the scripture, and who love us and are willing to, to risk grieving us so that we might repent and find joy. I got to finish. At pretty much, I think, every funeral that I get to speak at now, I include that grief is the price that we pay for love. You can walk through your life without that type of grief if you walk through your life without love. But love is always worth it. 
love is always worth the grief that can come from it. And so we should do it. We should love every time. God loves us more. He loves us the most. There's that song, the, the one who knows me best is the one who loves me the most. The one who knows me the best is the one who loves me the most. And he will lovingly in his grace and mercy grieve me, but not in a hopeless way that brings death, but for my gain so that I'll repent, so that I'll see, oh, wait, <laughs> You're hurting me. This has hurt me to, to find out that I was wrong. Do you remember what it was like the first time you saw your own sin for what it was? Do you remember what that's like? Has that happened to you recently where you were grieved by your sin because you saw it by faith? You saw it how he sees it. There's grief that comes from that. It's like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I, I made that decision. I can't believe I walked that direction. I can't believe I did that. But it leads to repentance. And in Him, just like it said right here, it leads to salvation without regret. Salvation without regret. And so He loves us that way. That's how He deals with us. That's how He saved us. And so similarly, what's His body going to do? It's going to do the things that He does. It's going to do the things that he does. Remember, it's not easy to be part of the church. As the first uh, section of this, it's not easy to be a part of the church. And this is one of many reasons why it's not easy to be a part. Because that love can bring times of grief. But it's always worth it. It's always worth it to have the table of fellowship. And there has to be the table of fellowship. Again, don't last somebody that you don't love. Don't. We always think about people talk, like to talk about Jesus turning over tables and whipping people out of the temple. Before that, guess what he was doing? Weeping over them. Weeping over them. Why? Because I'm going to have to grieve them. He wept over them before he whipped them. And I think it's that parent line, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And they're like, I don't know about that. I would dispute that. Nothing grieved us more than our sin and seeing it for what it was. And on our own, we were stuck in that cycle of worldly grief that produces death. And he grieved us by letting us see it again by faith. But he didn't leave us there. In Christ, he made a way of escape so that we could repent and have salvation without regret. And it's the same way with our sanctification. What he's doing when he grieves us with the truth it's got to be set on top of that relationship. Remember, just like I said with Paul, the correction is set on top of the relationship. That's what it's founded and based on what he's already done and what he's already said. We want it to be in our lives a good grief. And who gets to determine that? I do for me. You determine that for you. Are you going to be bitter because you were grieved? Are you going to isolate because you were grieved? Or are you going to turn in repentance that leads to salvation without regret? It's the same grief, two sides of it. You decide how it goes.
I was going to turn there. Don't have time to turn there. But in Psalm 94, it says, Blessed is the one that you discipline and that you teach to bring him relief in troubled times until a pit is dug for the wicked. <laughs> I like that last part. But blessed is him who you discipline and who you teach. Why? Because it's going to bring him relief. Wait a second. You said it brought grief. Discipline and teaching brings grief in the moment. Long term, it brings relief. When he teaches me and he trains me, when I teach these kids and train them up, they do not like it in the moment. But long term, guess what it's going to bring them? Relief in troubled times. Why? They're going to be stronger. They're going to be smarter. They're going to know how to handle this. They're going to be better equipped. That's what we do at the table of fellowship. Good grief. But it produces repentance, change in the way that I think, leading to salvation without regret. Look at all that good that that produces. Salvation without regret. Because it's changing the way that I think. You think different now than you did 10 years ago. You've grown a lot. Again, I could sit down with 18-year-old Stephen and go, buddy, there's just, mm, I know. Just calm down. Why are you, stop pacing. Sit down. Sit down. Right? He knew so much. I know more now. I could counsel him now. I'll turn 41 this year. Guess what? 50-year-old Stephen, God willing, how much more is he going to know? He could sit down with this guy and tell him a few things. Right? It's the same way. Our, our lives should be that way, that we're growing. And how are we growing? By taking that grief when it's presented to us and handling it the right way at the table and at his feet. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for grieving us when we needed to be grieved. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin and leaving us undisciplined, untrained, that you saved us from the penalty of it. I thank you that you're also wanting to save us from the power of it in our life. And that's going to result in some grief and it's going to result in uh, some moments that, that we question and that we feel that friction. Sanctification is like iron sharpening iron and there's a lot of sparks and there's heat that comes up from it. But I thank you that you grieve us when we need to be grieved. And I thank you that you give us brothers and sisters in faith to walk alongside us our, our rider dies. Our, our people that have already made room in their hearts for us. Thank you, Lord, that we would make room in our hearts for them. And by doing so, make room for you. Make room for you. So that when correction comes, if we're grieved, that we be grieved in a godly and good way. A way that would lead to repentance and salvation without regret. And we wouldn't remain in that worldly grief which produces death. I thank you for Christ. I thank you that you, you afflicted him for our benefit and for our comfort. That our ultimate grief that we couldn't do anything about, you put on him. And it pleased you to do that because it brought about our salvation. I thank you that in that, just as we sang, no fate do we dread because we know that we're forgiven. In the future, sure, the price has been paid because Jesus bled and suffered for our pardon and proved His victory by rising from the grave. I thank You, Lord, that we walk in that victory 
And we walk in newness of life. And in that, you're teaching us. You're teaching us a better way. As we get older, we learn more and more. Not just older in age, but as we mature in you. I thank you that we'll never close ourselves off to the relationships. That though they, though they may grieve us, that they're worth it. Because they're bound together by love. I thank you for this function of the body. As we get ready to go today, Lord, I thank you that we go in peace and unity with one another. Thank you that you protect us and keep us safe. Those that are out from us, I thank you, Lord, that you bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine upon them and give them peace. As we go through this week, I thank you that we do so with you in mind. And that when we run into those moments, moments of frustration, moments of difficulty, moments of struggle, when we would holler out, good grief. Lord, that we'll be mindful that you are at work even in those situations to our good. You can take them and what's causing us issue can bring about salvation both in our life in the moment and for helping others. We pray for the ministry that's going into the jail today. Lord, that you would open wide the door for the gospel. I thank you that they'll be free from distractions that there will be no incidents that will keep them from moving about freely today. They will not be restrained by anything but you. And Holy Spirit, that you're already working on the hearts of men and women to receive the hope that you have for them today. That those who sit in darkness will have seen a great light. And I thank you for the illumination that we walk in. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.